Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, appreciate you guys being with us today. Uh, as we get started, I want to ask you a question. If you've ever had a time where you felt like you were being uh, trapped in a bad situation, if you've ever felt like you were kind of walking into a situation that there was no good way out of, maybe it was like a lose-lose situation or a situation that you just thought you were kind of trapped in. Well, this happened to me back in senior year of high school. Um, what had happened at the time is I wanted to do something, and I was trying to remember, and I cannot remember what exactly it was, but I was trying to either buy something or for, for my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, or take her out on a date or something, but I didn't have the money to do it. And at the time, I, I had a job, I worked, but I didn't make much, and so I had a buddy that worked, uh, had a better job than I did, and was working at the time, and I'd kind of mentioned to him how this is something I wanted to do, and he was like, well, I'll, I'll help you afford it, I'll help you pay for it. Like, you know, I don't want you to give me money because that's awkward and, and I don't want you to loan it to me either because that, you know, I didn't make much money. I didn't know when I could pay it back. He's like, well, how about this? I have something that I need done, so you do me this favor and then I'll give you the money that you need. I was like, all right, that's, that's fine. You know, I'll, I'll help you out. You help me out. It'll be a, um, a good deal. So what he said is he lived in this town in Michigan where I'm from called Farmington and there's this little theater in Farmington that shows like old movies and only has one or two screens and he said, tonight, after dark, go to the theater. And outside the theater, there's this trash can. And between the trash can and the wall outside, like on the sidewalk, there'll be wedged uh, uh, like a brown paper bag, like a lunch bag. Just grab it for me, bring it over to my house, and, and I'll help you out. I'm like, okay. I, I was like, so what's in the bag? I was like, don't worry about it. Honestly, it's no big deal. Just grab it, bring it over, and uh, we'll be good to go. I'm like, okay, I guess. And the whole day I'm thinking, like this kid, he, he never gotten really any trouble. He was always like a very straight-laced kid, didn't get into any of the dumb stuff that a lot of the, the rest of us did. So I was like, I'm sure it's nothing weird, but this is kind of weird, but I'll do it anyways. And so I go that night after dark, I go to the theater, I walk outside, there's a trash can, and just wedged in between the trash can and the wall, there's this brown paper bag. Like, okay, so I just kind of inconspicuously grab it, pretend like I'm just doing my own thing and just hurry it to my car. And in my car, I open it up and it's full of cash. And I'm like, uh, what? Now, I, don't, I didn't count it, but at the time, you know, we we're probably 17 years old. Any amount of cash is a lot of cash. <laughs> and so I'm looking at it and it's just full of cash. And so I'm confused and I start driving back to his house and I'm thinking, I'm sure it's nothing. This is, his name was Josh. I was like, it's, this is Josh. Like, I'm sure this is, this is nothing he's getting me into. But why is there a bag of cash? But it's Josh. Like, I'm sure that it's no big deal. But why was there this bag of cash? And I'm driving back to his house, and as I'm getting closer and closer, I just keep thinking to myself, what am I getting myself into? What did I just walk into and agree to? And I'm starting to think, am I driving into some sketchy situation? Who's going to be at his house when I show up? Or whose money did I just pick up that I'm now giving to him, that I'm now kind of a, an accomplice in? And I just kept wondering to myself, am I about to walk into some sort of trap? Well, today, we're going to continue our study through the book of Mark. And we're going to be looking at a time when there's some religious leaders who are trying to sort of trap Jesus. In a, in a question that they think that there's no right way out of. Uh, so today, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up with me. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black one and one of the seatbacks in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home. It's our gift to you today. 
But what's been going on so far, if you haven't been with us throughout our study throughout the book of Mark, is Jesus, what's, hap- what's been happening is he's been gaining followers and crowds have been following him. And these religious leaders wanted him stopped or arrested. And so when we get to Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we see them kind of come up with a plan that actually seems like it's kind of a good idea. So let's jump into uh, verse 13 as we start today, and it says this. It says, then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And we'll stop right there. So what's going on here, the the interesting thing here is we have the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are two different uh, groups of people. And the interesting thing here is these two are pretty much enemies. So they're coming together against Jesus, but they are not buds. They do not like each other. They're actually enemies but they're coming together for this common good in their eyes to stop Jesus. So to illustrate what's going on here, um, because these are some people groups we don't necessarily talk about in our modern day lives, um, I made this infographic. So you can put the first slide up. This is a really complicated one, so I'll walk you through it, and you'll see what I mean in a second. So on one side, we have the Pharisees, and who these people are, these are, this is a religious faction, and what they're doing is they're waiting for the coming Messiah. They, they're expecting a Messiah to come, but they don't believe that Jesus is that Messiah. Uh, Jesus has done things that had gone, gone against their law. He had done things that, in their eyes, had broken the Sabbath. Um, and he, because they didn't think he was who he said he was, and he's claiming to be the Son of God, they're, they're thinking that he's blasphemous. So they don't think Jesus is the coming Messiah. And they hated the Herodians, who we'll talk about in a second, because they wanted another ruler other than the Messiah. So we have the Pharisees on one hand, on, on one side. On the other side, we have the Herodians. And who these people were is this was a group that wanted Herod and his family to regain control in the region. So what has happened is Rome and and Caesar had basically taken over this region, and they wanted Herod's family to regain control. So what they thought, and what many people thought, is that Jesus was coming to um, kind of overthrow Rome. He was coming, coming as a political leader to overthrow Rome. And so what, what they were kind of afraid of is they wanted to stop him because they thought if Rome thought that this person was uh, rising up to, to, to overthrow Rome, then they would tighten their grip on the region, which would make it even harder for Herod and his family to regain control. So they wanted Jesus stopped, but they also hated the Pharisees because they wanted another ruler other than Herod. So we have these two groups of people. They want kind of different people or different groups to take control of the region. And you can go to the next slide. They don't like each other. They are thumbs down towards each other. They're not buds. But in this case, you can go ahead to the next one. They're buds. They like each other because they have a common enemy, and that enemy is Jesus. They don't like Jesus, so they're coming together to stop Jesus because their ultimate goal is what? No more Jesus. So that's what they're going for here. Um, so they're kind of, they're enemies, they're coming together to stop Jesus. And you know, we like it when we see, hear stories of people from opposite sides of something coming together for the greater good. But these are two groups of people coming together kind of for the greater bad. They want Jesus stopped, and so they're willing to work together to make that happen. They both had a reason to stop Jesus, and both were kind of looking for opportunities to, to, to kind of trick him or to trap him into saying something that would undermine his authority and discredit him. So that's where we are right now. These are the two kind of groups of people that are coming against him. We continue in verse 14. And it says, when they came, they said to him, teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show, nor, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. So before they even get to their question that they're going to kind of pose to Jesus today, they start with flattery. 
And they're, they're kind of insincerely acknowledging these positive attributes about Jesus. Now, the interesting thing here is everything they're saying about Jesus is actually true. You know, they're saying, uh, you're, you're truthful, you don't care what anyone thinks, you don't show partiality, you teach the way of God truthfully. They're saying these things that are true, but what we know about them is they don't actually believe the things that they're saying. Because we can see that in what they do and how they live, but they're actually saying true statements about Jesus. See, everything they said about him was true, but it's obvious they didn't actually believe it. And how often do we do the exact same thing? How often do we do the same thing of acknowledging who Jesus is, acknowledging who God is if you're a follower of Jesus, but the way we live can look the exact opposite way? And it made me think of this. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm from Michigan. Uh, yeah, I heard a woohoo. There's, I think it's about half of the people in here. Um, but when you come down south, especially to Raleigh, there, and you meet new people, there's one question you ask to every single person you meet, and that's, where are you from? Because no one's from here. And if you are from here, that's even more interesting, actually. But you always ask, <laughs> another who. Um, but if you, uh, if you meet someone, you ask where they're from, and so I just always tell people from Michigan, but because there's so many Michiganders down here, everyone would always ask, what part of Michigan are you from? So for a while, I would tell people I'm from Detroit. Um, I'm not actually from Detroit, but from the Detroit area. And that's just the, the, the uh, biggest, nearest big city that people have any idea where it is. And what I found is if I tell people I'm from the city of Detroit, now that's not actually what I mean, but if they take it to mean that, people automatically have uh, certain ideas in their head of what being from the city of Detroit is like. Because you know what, good or bad, like it or not, Detroit's got a little bit of a reputation. It's, it's, it's had its challenges, some uh, not its own fault, some are its own fault, but it's, it's a city that's had a lot of uh, corruption and has kind of crumbling infrastructure and a lot of negative things have happened to the city. And so if you tell someone, hey, I'm from the city of Detroit, they immediately think you may have had a, tough, a tougher upbringing, you may have faced some challenges that maybe other people haven't. But the fact of the matter is, I am not from the city of Detroit. I am from about 30 to 40 minutes away from Detroit in a little suburban neighborhood. And let me tell you, nothing difficult ever happened there. <laughs> nothing cool ever happened there either. Nothing period ever happened there. I'm from this little township. We weren't, we weren't a city, we weren't even a town. We were a township. Um, and growing up, right now, now it's kind of more suburban, but growing up it was a little more rural. There weren't as many things out there. And across the street from my parents' house was when I grew up and still is a farm. Across from the farm, there's an apple orchard. Uh, nothing, nothing really ever happened. The biggest news that happened in the neighborhood was when kids like me would like ride our bikes through the woods and leave something there and people would get upset about it. Or we'd be out after dark or something like that. Nothing really ever happened. In fact, the, the um, road leading into my neighborhood growing up is called Martindale. And so our neighborhood was called Martindale Meadows. So that should tell you about what, where I grew up. That's what we were called. Um, but the fact of the matter is, if people think I'm actually from the city of Detroit, that's just very different than what the actual reality is. The reality is growing up in the Detroit area is not the same, or the, the Detroit area, so to speak, is not the same as actually growing up in the city itself. And in the same way, what's happening here is they're acknowledging something about Jesus, but they're not actually living it out. And what we can see is those aren't the same things. Or to put it another way, acknowledging who Jesus is isn't the same as actually living for him. Acknowledging these truths about Jesus, 
Acknowledging these truths about God is not the same as actually living them out. See, scripture is full of people who acknowledge who God is, full of people who claim um, uh, certain attributes about God, but live in a way that goes directly against what they're saying. And we can do the exact same thing. You see, for the majority of my life, pretty much any point in my life, if you were to ask me, and if I were to be brave enough to be honest with you, I would have told you, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yes, I believe in God, those sort of things. But if you were to kind of plop yourself down at many points in the timeline of my life, not ask me any questions, but just look at the way I lived, you would see something that told you the exact opposite. The exact opposite, because the fact of the matter is, I could easily claim to follow Jesus. I could easily claim certain things that I knew to be true about God, but living them out is a different story. And that's what we're seeing here. They're acknowledging who Jesus is, but their lives and actions show that they don't actually believe what they're saying. So we continue in verse 14 as we come to the second part of the verse, and we get to what their actual question is. They say to Jesus, they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? So this is, what, this is where we get to their actual question. And we're going to take a minute and kind of um, have a little bit of a history lesson here because it's, it's easy to look at these couple verses and misinterpret them or misapply them and try and apply it to our context today and assume we know what's going on. Because you might be reading this, as I remember doing as a kid, or if, if you haven't heard this before, and you might be thinking, is Jesus about to tell me if I should pay my taxes or not? If he says no, I'm good. Like, I, I'm out. Which you can, but it probably won't work out super well for you. So feel free. But, but let's look at what Jesus is actually saying here and what they're actually asking. And so we can see how we can kind of apply it today. So what's going on here is Caesar and Rome, as we talked about before, Rome had kind of overthrown this region of Judea and they had imposed this tax on them. And this was not a tax in the sense that we see a tax today. In other words, it wasn't a tax that goes to pay for um, kind of uh, uh, improving the infrastructure or goes towards education or anything like that. It was a tax simply because they were told to pay a tax. And so th this tax that they were uh, told to pay equated to one denarius a year. And what a denarius is, is it's a coin, and it was kind of, it was equal to about one day's wage for a laborer. So it was not a large amount, long story short. So people were not upset with it because they couldn't afford to pay it. They were upset with it because they saw it as kind of a form of servitude, that they were told to do this thing and they were getting nothing in return for it. Now, it's not a perfect example. Not, trying to take things and directly kind of interpret them today is, never really works out super well because we're in a different world. But if you kind of think of it like this, you kind of think of it, we're in the US, and if another country or another ruler was to completely overthrow our country, overthrow our government, and they imposed a tax on us that we had to pay to them, and it was for no other reason other than having to pay it. It didn't go towards anything to better the country. It didn't go towards anything that we could see. It just went, we had to pay it because we were told to pay it. And to make it even worse, it was paid with a coin that had the image of Caesar on it. So it had the image of this other ruler on it. So we have, I have a picture of one. You can go ahead and put that slide up. So this is a picture of what a denarius would look like. And to make things even more complicated for people and for Jesus in answering this question, the, the, the image on it is of Caesar and it had an inscription on it that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So the implication here is that Augustus is God or a God and Tiberius is the son of God. 
And what many people thought is um, paying this tax or using this form of currency was acknowledging that as being true. So they're, they're asking Jesus this actually kind of difficult question. And the tough part is there's no real right answer that Jesus can give. If he says, don't pay, he could be arrested. He likely would have been arrested. If he says, pay, then he would likely uh, alienate some of his followers and lose people that didn't like the tax. So regardless of his answer, he would have been seen, seen as siding with one group of people. We had the zealots who hated the tax and absolutely refused to pay it. We had the Pharisees who saw the tax as humiliating, but were willing to pay out of respect for the law. And then we saw the Herodians, which would have had no problem paying it. So regardless of what Jesus says, he has to side with one group and alienate the others. And so Jesus is in kind of a tough situation here, at least from our perspective. Then we continue in verse 15, and we see what happens next. It says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he, being Jesus, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this, he asked? Caesar's, they replied. And what's interesting here is Jesus doesn't have a denarius or one of these coins on him, but asks them for one and they pull one out. And the implication is, here is they have one. So clearly, they don't, they're not actually interested in the answer to the question. Clearly, they have one. They're using it. They would use it to pay this tax. So he's saying, you're not actually interested in my response here, but you're just interested in seeing if you can trap me in my response. So we continue in verse 17, the first part of verse 17, and we see the beginning of his answer. Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So a coin with the, the ruler or the leader's uh, image and inscription on it would have literally been seen as his own property, even while it's in circulation. So Jesus is simply affirming that people have an obligation to the state to return to Caesar what is actually belongs to him. And, and before getting to the second part of um, Jesus' response, I think it's important to acknowledge what Jesus didn't do here. In saying to uh, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, he's saying that he's not here to form any sort of government. In other words, he's not here to overthrow the government, as many people thought he was and wanted him to do, saying he's not here to overthrow the government or form any sort of theocratic rule. See, what Caesar was doing here was clearly wrong, clearly sinful. He had created uh, something with an image of himself, saying that he is the son of God, essentially, and that Caesar, Augustus, was God. Clearly wrong, clearly sinful, clearly idolatrous. But Jesus doesn't tell them to go against it. He doesn't tell them to overthrow them. He doesn't say what he's doing is wrong, so you need to turn against them. He says that they need to continue to pay it. And so what I want us to see here before we get to kind of the bigger idea of what Jesus is saying, but what I think it's important for us to see here is that Jesus is more concerned with our hearts than our nation. And let me explain what I mean by that when I say that. Don't get me wrong. I do not think it's wrong to care about our nation. I don't think it's wrong to care about politics. I think, it's, I think all those things are important. I like America. I'm from here. I don't plan to leave. Like, I think we've done a lot of things wrong, but a lot of things right too. And so this is not a, a, a thing of me saying, you should just not care about where you're from or anything like that. But we can see Jesus time and time again addressing individual actions and motivations and not trying to overthrow or overturn a government that was repeatedly doing things that would go against what we would think would be God's will. So Jesus is more concerned with the heart of an individual and that we're living in a way that honors God. Again, don't get me wrong. I think politics are important. 
I think her country's important. And I don't think Jesus would say it's wrong to care about those things. In fact, I think he would say the exact opposite. But Jesus is so much more important than our political parties, than our nation. And he's concerned with our hearts and that we're living in a way that honors him. So as we finish up today in this little short section that we're reading, let's jump into the last verse of verse 17. We see Jesus make his final point here. So he said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Then verse 17, Jesus uh, he continues, he says, give to Caesar things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, it's actually brilliant. He's, he's, in just this short few sentences, he's dividing Caesar from God. You know, the, the, the implication of the coin is that uh, Caesar claimed to be a God himself. And so Jesus is dividing the two saying, give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. Oh, but also give to God the things that are God's. In other words, these are not the same being. These are not the same entity. And so what does it mean to give, the, give to God the things that are God's? When I remember hearing this verse uh, growing up and things, I remember this, I, my memory of it was basically give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, pay your taxes. Give to God the things that are God's. In other words, tithe. Easy peasy. I don't think that's what's happening here. And I'll tell you why. If we go back to verse 16, Jesus asks about the coin. He says, whose image is on the coin? And because they bear the image of Caesar, they should be returned to him. And in the same way, that which bears the image of God should be returned to him as well. So it begs the question, what bears the image of God? Well, we, we can find the answer all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, the first chapter of Genesis. These couple of verses will be up on the screen. But all the way back in Genesis, in the account of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says... Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what does it mean to give to God the things that are God's? It means giving your entire self to God. See, what we can see here is that obedience to a secular power doesn't necessarily conflict with our obligation to God. You can be a devout, a devout um, Christ follower and vote for either political party. You can be a, devite, a devout Christ follower and have different kind of ideas of how things should be done, but the more important issue is what are you doing with your own life? See, Jesus came and gave his own life so that we could have access to and be a part of God's family. But he didn't do it so we could give him a portion of our lives and hold the rest back for ourselves. He didn't, he, he didn't do it so we could give God the parts that, are, that we're comfortable with giving, give God the easy parts, but hold back the parts that are more difficult. He did it so we could give our entire lives over to him. So let's go back to that story I was telling at the beginning of the message. I uh, picked up some cash, and I was driving with it. And I'm driving, and I'm thinking back and forth, what is going on here? Am I about to get myself into a rough situation? I'm sure it's no big deal, but also, I mean, I'm 17, and I have this bag full of cash. I'm kind of nervous about even, like, what if I get pulled over and ask what all this cash is for? I don't have any idea. I don't know whose cash it is. So I'm driving with it. I'm nervous. I pull up to my buddy's house, and I get out, and he's waiting outside for me. So I bring him this bag, hand him this bag of cash. He takes it, looks inside, grabs out a little bit of, little bit of the cash, hands it to me, says thanks and turns around to walk inside. I'm like, dude, what did I just do? What is this money for? 
And he, without even turning around and looking at me, he just starts laughing. I'm like, what? What is this? And come to find out, there was nothing going on. It was his own money. He knew that I needed to borrow some money or need, knew that I needed some money. So he went a little bit before I did to the theater, got some cash out of the ATM, shoved it in a bag and shoved it behind a trash can, and then just went home to wait for me to bring him his own money back. <laughs> like, dude, you are trusting. We are 17. Like, we do not have much money to play with here, but, but thanks. <laughs> but, but what happened here? See, for a short time, I thought I earned that money. I didn't like the way I earned it, but I thought that I was doing him a favor and deserved the money because of what I did for him. I thought this was an even trade. I do something for him, he does something for me. But in reality, after finding out the, what was actually going on, I didn't earn anything. I did nothing. I gave him his own money back. I basically went to the ATM, took money out, and then handed it back to him and said, here's your own money. I did nothing to earn what I was given from him. And you see, this on a much, much, much grander scale is what Jesus has done for us. He gave so much more than money, but he gave us everything to you and to me, even though we did absolutely nothing to earn it, even though we did absolutely nothing to deserve it. And it can be easy sometimes thinking that I did earn it. It can be easy sometimes thinking, well, I did all these things, so I know I don't actually earn it, but uh, I've done all these things, so I think I'm kind of okay. But we can see is that we've done absolutely nothing to earn it. And Jesus came and died this literal death and gave his life. And he faced separation from God. He died in a way, not in the sense that we think of death, but he faced total separation from God, took the sin of the world on his shoulders. And he did so not to create an obligation in us where we have to start living for him, but he did so so that we can have the opportunity to live for him. Because of his death and his resurrection, we have the opportunity to live for him, not because we have to, but because we get to. You see, what I want us to see here is that Jesus deserves your whole self. Jesus deserves your whole self. He gave his life for you and for me and gave us this opportunity to be a part of his family. And because of that, he deserves everything. He deserves everything in return, not just the parts that are easy for us to give or the easy, easy for us to surrender over to him, but every part. Now, I understand it's easy for me to get up here and say that. Give God everything. Cool. And then leave. What does that even mean? What does it mean to give God everything? Is that like I need to sell everything I have and go and give everything away? Or I need to just walk away from my family so that God can have everything in my life? What does it actually mean to give everything over to God? What I think it means is that we can look at areas in our life we can look for areas in our life that we haven't handed over to him yet, and we can start there. See, life completely surrendered to Jesus means not holding on to old habits or old kind of areas of our life that we don't want to turn over to him. What would happen if we looked at our own lives and we pulled back the curtain on our own lives and everything we are hiding from God or, or kind of refusing to let God to be a part of, or everything we are hiding from people was exposed? What would our lives look like? I think the question that we need to be asking ourselves, I think it's an important question to regularly ask ourselves, including myself, is what am I holding back from Jesus? What am I holding back from Jesus? What haven't I surrendered to him yet? What habits or things am I still holding on to, even though I have a relationship with Jesus, 
And I, I allow them into certain areas of my life. It's not like I block them out of everything, but what areas am I still holding back from him? Am I holding back my relationship with somebody? Am I in an unhealthy relationship that I don't, just don't want to let Jesus be a part of? Or am I in a relationship that, you know, if I let Jesus be a part of it, then there's probably some things we need to do differently, and that would be uncomfortable. Am I holding back my political views from Jesus? Do I actually have relationships and love people that are on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me? And I want you to hear me when I say love people. Love doesn't mean just being nice from afar. But do I actually have relationships and are close with people who have differing views than me? Or am I just nice when I pass them by, but I don't actually want to get too close from them because that might challenge some of my own beliefs? Do I hold my money back from Jesus? Whether I have a little or a lot, am I trusting him with what I have? Or am I refusing to let Jesus be a part of that area of my life? Am I holding back certain habits or addictions from him? Am I holding back certain things that, you know, if I let Jesus into this part of my life, it's going to make things really uncomfortable. I have to, that means I, I might have to be honest with somebody about the things that I'm struggling with. And it, you know what? It's just easier to hold it to myself. It's easier not to let people in on that part of my life. See, I want to encourage you to, as we talk about this today, if you have something that's coming to mind, if, as I ask, what am I holding back from Jesus? If anything pops into your mind, that's the thing. Uh, it's not an accident. That's the thing. And I want to encourage you, don't make future plans. Don't make future plans, but take the first steps today. Take the first steps of whatever that one thing is, surrendering that one thing over to Jesus. Because I, I, I have to tell you, the perfect time will never come. The perfect time will never come if you continue to wait on it. I know it can be easy to think, I, if I give this over to Jesus, that means I need to talk to somebody about it. And today's not a good day. There's these other things going on. I don't want to make a weird day for them, or I don't want to kind of get in the way of plans that exist. But the perfect time will never come. And if we continue to wait for it, then we're going to be waiting forever. But take that first step today to move towards a life completely surrendered to Christ. As we wrap up today, I want to read a verse in Galatians. This will be on the screen. Paul writes this in his letter to the churches in Galatia, in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, live in the, uh, life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, a life lived for Christ is a life fully devoted to him. He deserves everything. He deserves our whole selves. Not because we have to, not because he died for us to create an obligation in us that he gave us this, so we've got to give him something back, and then we're even. But he died for you and for me, and to give us the opportunity to be a part of God's family. See, Jesus died for us. And even though we don't deserve it, and even though we can never do anything in return, even though we could never do anything to repay it, he doesn't ask for much. He just asks for us. He doesn't ask us to do this whole laundry list of things, and then we'll be even. He just wants you. And he wants you for your own good, not just for himself, but because that's that's for your own good, and that's the way to live a better life for Christ. But the difference is that he does deserve it. He gave his life for you and for me, even though we did nothing to deserve it, and he asks for our lives in return. But the difference is that he actually deserves it, and he deserves so much more than anything we could give him.